Please stand and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1, we'll read verses 18 to 31, and then we'll turn to our sermon text, Judges 7. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now let's turn to Judges 7, verses 1 through 8. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 Remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, 
and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his, own, to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we heard all about Paul's experiences when he came to the city of Corinth for the first time and planted the Corinthian church. And um, Remember that wonderful promise we focused on that Jesus gave to him. He said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. We also talked about um, how... Paul first came to Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in fact, in both of his letters to that Corinthian church, that theme of God's strength in our weakness, that theme comes comes back again and again. uh, And one such passage we read just a minute ago from 1 Corinthians 1. That theme of strength in weakness... Uh, was not original with Paul, though, of course. It rings true in Paul's life and in Paul's letters because it really is echoing, it matches the way that God has always worked all the way through the history of salvation from the very beginning. One of the most iconic places, though, that that theme of strength in weakness Uh, comes to the fore in Bible history is here in Gideon's victory over the Midianites. And uh, these first eight verses of chapter uh, 7 set that up for us tonight in a very important way. So let's look at this passage in three parts tonight. First, we're going to call the freedom of being dispensable, verses 1 and 2. The freedom of being dispensable. Second is going to be the fear that leads to missing out, verse 3. Explain what that means. And then third, the few who find God's strength in weakness, verses 4 through 8. So first, the freedom of being dispensable. It's been said that one way a person can really harm a church or ministry, or really the same thing goes for a business as well, is to make themselves indispensable to it. For their own uh, personality, uh, to be so entangled, uh, integrated with the organization and its operations. If that person dies or disappears or something, the organization simply can't go on because they've made themselves indispensable. And that can feel like the right thing. Uh, being Being indispensable appeals to our pride. We want our lives to mean something. It can be a certain gratification, being the linchpin that everything and everybody's hanging on. But it's also a great, a great burden. Uh, people can't do without you, and so you'd better do, do, do everything. Do whatever it takes to prove that, yes, you are dependable, that, yes, uh, people should keep depending on you personally. But when it comes to the Christian life, we can sometimes get the idea that we are indispensable, not just to other people, but to the work that God is doing. 
that God somehow needs us in order for the work to carry on. And, of course, there's a, there's a sense, uh, kind of an angle from which there's a grain of truth in that, if, um, because of God's purpose to use us in his plan, if God has decided to use us as its instruments to get the work done, then that's how it ought to be, that's how it must be, because he's our sovereign king. But does Jesus positively need us? Is there no one else he could use to do the work? Is he depending on us as though he couldn't do it without us if he wished to? And this part of Gideon's history suggests otherwise. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. Gideon has mustered a pretty good fighting force here. He's gotten people from four different tribes, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. But at this point, it's not at all clear that this fighting force was strong enough, uh, from a human point of view at least, to be a match for the Midianite and Amalekite uh, coalition, along with the peoples of the east, who have camped out in this valley to their north. Um, Verse 12 is later going to say that they lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And so at this juncture in the story, what you might expect God to say to Gideon was, Gideon, that's great that you've recruited um, these people from these four tribes, but there are eight tribes left to go. Go on through the rest of Israel and get everybody together. We need a bigger army to go and defeat Midian. Go get Judah. Go get Benjamin. Tell them to join up. But that's not what the Lord says. In fact, he says the opposite. The people with you are too many. Too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why is that? It's, well, lest Israel boast over me, boast over the Lord, saying, my own hand has saved me. This recalls something the Lord says to Israel through Moses back in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, the Lord warns Israel about how when they get into the promised land, and they're living there and enjoying everything that God's giving them, they are going to be tempted to a spirit of pride that says, Beware lest you say in your heart, as Deuteronomy 8, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. There's that danger of taking the credit to ourselves for things that really only God possibly could have done. We contributed only our need and some choice mistakes and sinful blunders along the way. That's our contribution. The blessing is all from God. See, if if Israel had gone out with a big army and fought against Midian and they won, then they might have said, oh, well, That was nice that the Lord helped us to win this battle that we just won. Of course, who's to say that maybe Baal and Asherah didn't have a hand in helping us fight the battle too. We prayed to all of them. They all kind of made their contribution. But in the end, who actually did the fighting? And the glory of the Lord would have been obscured by that outcome. So what the Lord is doing here is he is systematically removing any possible shadow of a doubt that the ensuing victory 
can be attributed to only one cause, and that is the supernatural almighty power of God, the sovereign lordship of the one true God of Israel. Last time I pointed out some similarities between Gideon destroying the altar of Baal uh, in 1 Kings Oh, sorry, between Gideon destroying the altar of Baal in chapter 6 and, and um, Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings. Um, and here I would just remind you of um, the way that Elijah there on Mount Carmel, you remember how he douses his sacrifice with gallons and gallons and gallons of water. Go fill up the jars again. Go pour some more water on the sacrifice before he prays for God to send the fire from heaven to consume, to consume the sacrifice, and, and God does. And the point of all of that water being dumped over and filling the trough around the altar and everything is to make it as difficult as possible for that sacrifice to catch on fire, to remove any possible natural explanation for what's about to happen so that whatever remains, as Sherlock Holmes would say, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however unlikely, must be the truth. It's kind of what the Lord's doing here, removing all other possible explanations so that whatever remains, the only thing that remains is the power of God to bring this victory to pass. Now, this is not what Gideon was expecting to hear. If, if anything was indispensable for defeating the Midianites... Well, surely it was a big army. That's a must. We've got to have a big army if we're going to defeat this big army of Midianites. There are so many of them. We've got to match numbers with numbers. We've got to fight fire with fire. It's obvious, it seems. But as it turns out, in fact, not one man in Gideon's army was indispensable to the Lord. Not one. In fact, not even Gideon was indispensable to the Lord. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. And I just want to invite you here to, to think for a minute about the freedom there is in knowing that we are not, in an ultimate sense, indispensable in the plan of God. He does not need us. What God does is he graciously comes down to our level and he gently leads us, includes us in doing his will, works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. But remember, it is God who is working in us, all of those things. There's nothing that any of us lacks that God can't supply and there's nothing any of us can offer to God that he cannot do without. And there's freedom to be found in that because the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The responsibility for the outcome belongs to God and not to us. He hasn't called us to be indispensable for it all to hang on our effort. He simply called us to be faithful and to trust him for the outcome. Now, what a blessing just to get to be a part of what God is doing. It should give us both humility and confidence. It reminds me of what um, Esther is told. 
if you don't save God's people, God will bring help from somewhere else. But look, you have this opportunity. Look at where God has placed you for such a time as this. It's a privilege to be part of God's plan. Now, this whittling down of Gideon's army takes place in two stages. Uh, the first thing the Lord says is, who, uh, is whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Um, so that might seem sort of out of the blue, to let people leave the army just because they're scared. Uh, but actually, it's not out of the blue. Um, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, you can turn there if you like, God gives an instruction there for how Israel is to go about their uh, many wars. Uh, when Israel goes out to battle, Moses said, you need to check a few things. Uh, you need to check, is anybody recently married? Give them a chance to um, uh, build their marriage with their spouse. Don't make them go out with the army. Does anybody need to take care of some new farmland? That's fine. Let them go take care of their new farmland. Again, it's almost as the Lord is saying, I don't, I don't need every single person. I'm the one who's going to be winning these victories for you. And then you come to verse 8, and it says, And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. See, the Lord did not think that there should be any men in Israel's army who were going to uh, compromise the resolve, the faith, the courage, the hope of the men around them by their own fear, cowardice. Better for them not to be there at all. Because again, the Lord does not need them. It's the Lord who is going to win the victory. Uh, I don't know if there's any other army in the world that does uh, compulsory service this way, who does the draft this way, say, oh, oh, you're, you're afraid to join up. Okay, then you don't have to. You can go home again. That's not the way um, you know, compulsory service works or, or uh, you know, world armies work. When people are pressed into service, by for- they, they, it's done by force because it's assumed that these people are going to be afraid. It's assumed these people don't want to join up, that they would much rather stay home, not go risk their lives. Um, at least that many of them are going to have that attitude, and that's why the draft has to happen by force. I'm not saying that everyone is trapped as, as, as afraid. Not at all. Don't, please don't get me wrong. What I'm, what I'm saying is there's that, that forceful aspect because being afraid is not a legitimate excuse in most uh, world armies for not going to war for your country. We've, the attitude is we've, we've got to recruit as many people as possible so we can have that raw force of numbers to have enough power to win. That's not the way that the Lord's economy works. In the Lord's army, it does no good to force fearful men into the front lines for two reasons. Uh, One is the one that he states there in Deuteronomy. It will actually weaken the other soldiers. It will weaken their resolve. Uh, Some of them might start to have their confidence, their faith, shaken by the fear of the people around them. A rotten apple can spoil the whole barrel, as the saying goes. But that's not the only reason. The ultimate power behind Christ's army, after all, is Christ himself. And how do Christ's people come to experience the victory, the blessings of that victory that belong to us through him? Well, it's through faith, right? It's through faith. Faith wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Christ's army, then, is only going to have success if its soldiers 
are operating on the principle of faith. If we are going into that spiritual warfare, trusting our master's wisdom and power, not leaning on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledging him. Now, there's an irony here, right? In the last chapter, we saw uh, plenty of evidence that Gideon himself is a fearful servant of the Lord. Remember, we saw that tension in chapter 6 between Gideon's faith and obedience on the one hand, but also his fearfulness and reticence on the other. He's pretty reluctant about what God's telling him to do. He does it. He destroyed the altar altar of Baal, but he destroyed it at night. Why? It specifically says because he was too afraid to do it by day. Gideon is a fearful guy. And even after he had set out on the right course of obedience, he still needed just a little bit more reassurance time and again, asking for more signs. Lord, is this really what you're going to do? Please give me another miracle to prove it to me one more time. So when the Lord sends home the fearful men of the army, we realize he could have sent Gideon home. But of course, the Lord already knew when he first chose Gideon, first called him to this task, he knew that Gideon was a man of small faith and great fears. The Lord knew that from the very beginning. And that is yet another way that the Lord is showing his strength in the midst of Israel's weakness, the weakness of their soldiers, the weakness of their leader that God has called. In every respect, right down the line, the Lord is showing this is not going to be Israel winning this victory. It's going to be the Lord winning the victory on their behalf. This victory is not only not going to depend on the strength of Gideon's military prowess. It's not even going to depend on the strength of Gideon's faith. It's going to require Gideon to exercise faith, but the victory is not going to depend on how strong his faith is. The battle and the victory is going to be attributable from start to finish, from top to bottom, to the power of God alone, period, with nothing added. Now, I want you to notice here just how many people leave the army. In response, this opportunity is opened up. If you're afraid, you can go ahead and leave. More than two-thirds of the army uh, take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, Lord, you say that uh, we're too many. Feel free to take some of my army and leave the rest, uh, Gideon might have thought. Go ahead. Uh, All right, I guess we'll do that. But then two-thirds of his men walk away. Imagine what a blow that must have felt like to Gideon. Now, think about those men who left. On the one hand, they lowered their risk, right? Now they don't have to go out to war. They don't have to risk their lives. But think about what they gave up in order to do that, in order to go home. I've called the second point the fear that leads to missing out. You've heard of uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. So I guess I'm making a play on words there. It's a uh, FOMO is the, it's the psychological term for um, why we keep doing things even when there's very little reward for doing them. Like uh, A big example of it is like scrolling through a social media news feed. Um, why do people keep doing this? Why is it so addictive? And it's because uh, every once in a while there's something really good. And we have this fear of missing out on something that might come through that we didn't get to see and other people did. 
Well, I'm turning that idea on its head a little bit. I think this passage warns us against a different kind of fear, a fear that leads to missing out on something that the Lord is doing. We might have otherwise had the opportunity to take part in. You remember the, um, the servant in Jesus' parable who takes the talent, the one talent of silver that his master gives him, he digs a hole and he buries it in the ground. And why does he do that? It's because he's afraid. He buries it in the ground because he's afraid and he doesn't want to lose it by investing it. So he does nothing with it. And so in the final judgment part of that parable, that talent is taken away from him. It's given to the fellow servants who um, uh, receive greater responsibilities and rewards because they did not behave with that kind of fear. These 22,000 men who leave the army, they avoid the battle. Yes, they avoid risking their lives. You see, they also avoid the victory. They don't get to experience the amazing outcome that the Lord brings past through the men who remain. It reminds me of that memorable speech from Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Uh, St. Christmas Day was last week, by the way, uh, where he says, and gentlemen in England now abed, all the people who aren't there in France fighting with the, English, with the tiny English army. All those gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. We few, we happy few, I remember him saying there. We band of brothers. It's those who stay, those 10,000 who stay and accept the reality of the warfare they must fight. Those are the ones who might have the opportunity to be part of the victory. Of course, ends up getting whittled down even more, but we want to think about that choice that the fearful ones make. They're choosing to abandon the army, choosing to protect themselves. They're also choosing that they're not going to be a part of whatever victory God might win for his people. What should our desire be? Should it be just to maximize our own security, our own safety, just to um, be as uh, low risk as possible in the service of God? Or should our desire be to take part in God's work in the church, in our community, in the world, not just to be passive observers, but to be part of what God is doing, even if that involves risk to us? Hebrews 10.39 and level 8 says, We are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back. Or in Hebrews 6, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I want to exhort us as the people of God not to let our fears, and in our case it may not be fear of Midianites, it's but other fears, a fear of failure, fear of getting something wrong, fear of people's opinions, fear of uh, what might happen in the future. We should let none of those things keep us from venturing out boldly in obedience, outside maybe our usual comfort zone, to serve people who are in need, to talk to people um, who need to hear the gospel, to encourage people who need our love to speak truth to people who need to hear the wisdom of God's word, to confront error and bad teaching uh, where it's leading people astray. And again, most of all, to share the good news of Jesus with people who need to hear his message. If you let fear keep you from doing anything, then you'll be like these men who left the army early. They missed the battle, yes, they missed all the risks, but they also missed the victory. 
Okay, now, the Lord has gotten Gideon's army down to 10,000. But in verse 4, he says, Gideon, I know we've just cut it down by two-thirds, but still too many. Still too many. Um, a lot of hay has been made among scholars talking about this test that God sets up here where everyone goes down to the water and they drink the water in different ways with different postures. Uh, some people want to say that the body language of each posture um, is indicating uh, the strengths and weaknesses. It's, it's giving us some insight into the character or relative virtues of the different kinds of soldiers. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. I would uh, side with those who think that... Um, This is not giving us insight into their character. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The point here is simply to get the army whittled down to 300 men. And this is the method God has for doing it. And the method that he chooses is designed to show that the, the choice of these 300 has nothing to do with their qualifications. They just happen to drink the water a little bit differently from everybody else. And God says, those are the people I'm going to use. Not, oh, all the biggest and the strongest ones. Not all the cleverest ones who have the best gift for strategy. Oh, just just give me those 300 that drank water that particular way. has nothing to do with their virtues, their uh, contribution, their merit. They have no qualification for service except they lacked. His last point I've labeled, the few who find God's strength and weakness. I love the scene in 1 Samuel where Jonathan, son of Saul, tells his armor bearer, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And that really is a great way of summing up the point of this whole episode in the life of Gideon. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. As Ecclesiastes says, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. And why is that? It is because God's power and his mysterious providence, his plan has been revealed all the way through the history of salvation. God's power is made perfect in weakness. It is when I am weak, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12. Then I am strong. I will boast, he says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. For the same reason that God sent the vast majority of Gideon's army home, lest Israel boast over me. That same principle is at work in the way that God has brought you to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, not through any merit of your own, nothing that you could contribute to your own salvation, everything that Christ has done for you. There are no qualifications in the business at all. This is God's way. This is God's way. It is deliberately to remove any impediments to us seeing fully and clearly that anything good we experience, any blessings we have are due not to our virtue, not to our faithfulness, not to the good that we have done, but solely to his grace and power working for us on our behalf. And if, and if God be for us, then who can be against us? Romans 8, right? Not Midian, not the devil, not our own sin and guilt and failure, not the powers of the world arrayed against the church. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
This was also God's way at the cross, when Christ himself was crucified in weakness. But in that moment of weakness, what was God doing? The power of God was breaking the curse against our sin and paving the way for the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but for all of us, all of Jesus' redeemed and beloved people. This was also God's way in the first generation of the church that we've been reading about in Acts in the morning sermon series. As the hymn says, I love this hymn, a glorious band, the chosen few on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their heads, the death to feel. Who follows in their train? This has been God's way, not only in that first generation of the church, it's been God's way throughout the history of the church. Tomorrow's Reformation Day. Think about Martin Luther standing alone because he could do no other. Think of the suffering bands of marginalized pastors and their people various times through those Reformation centuries who would not conform because they were intent to obey God rather than man. And see what the Lord did through them in the midst of their weakness to make his strength uh, be put on display. And if that's what God was doing in Gideon's time, if that's what God was doing at the cross, if that's what God was doing in the book of Acts, if that's what God has been doing right down the line through the history of the church, I want you to be encouraged, people of God, that that is what that is God's way right now, right here in State College, Pennsylvania. In this Little tiny church, Resurrection OPC. First Corinthians 1, Paul says, Not many of you were wise or powerful of noble birth. And sure, that's true of us too. You'd say the same thing of us, but we could, we could just stop with the first four words. Not many of you. Not many of us. But listen, beloved, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his spirit at work among us and through us by the power of Christ today, just as surely as he was at work in the army of Gideon. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this story of Gideon for the way you turned everything upside down by saying the people are too many. We thank you for showing us this sterling example of your strength made perfect in weakness. And so, Lord, we pray that with this in our view, remembering how you have done the same through Christ, through your church, down through the years, Lord, we pray that you would please give us faith and give us courage and boldness to serve you, knowing that we are not indispensable to, what you're, to the work you're doing in the world. You're, we're not indispensable to the work you're doing to the church, and yet you have chosen to use us. We have that joyful duty and privilege. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the joy and wonder of being part of your glorious band, the chosen few on whom the Spirit has come. Help us to follow in the train of these 300 men of Gideon 
of your 12 apostles, of the many other small groups of people who, from the world's point of view, didn't seem to have anything to commend themselves. But, Lord, you have always done powerful and amazing things through your might, your strength, your spirit at work among us and within us. We pray you would continue to do that in our midst and that you would help us to give you all of the glory and take none of the credit for ourselves um, as we see your work continue. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.